Okay. So we're going to start chapter 12. Chapter 12, the Altar introduces us to the Bainani. Now, I'm of two minds of this. One mind is we should just start the chapter without any introductions and dive our way in. And the other mind is that I should give some introductory remarks. And I think I'm going to do the second thing, even though a good part of me is arguing against doing that. Now, I want to, in the introductory remarks, I want to talk about a few different ideas. One is terminology. That's the first thing I want to cover. The second thing I want to cover um, is um, how we should be looking at the ideas in this chapter, and frankly, the rest of Tanya, because the rest of Tanya is all about the Bainami in one way or another, and so how should we relate to the ideas, and I want to explain why maybe chapter 12, that question becomes more relevant as, it did, as in a way that it didn't for the first 11 chapters of Tanya. What? Okay. So... There are three things that need to be um, disentangled. One is reality, two are ideas, and three are words. These are not the same thing. So sometimes we'll get into an argument about whether a blank is a blank. I don't know, pick whatever the blanks you want, right? Whether a, um, uh, a particular action is a crime or whether a particular person is an expert. Or pick whatever you want, right? People get into these kinds of arguments. Um, and sometimes those arguments are simply because they have different meanings for the same word, right? In other words, they're not really arguing. Both people are using a word, but they, the word to each of the speakers means something different, right? That, that, I'm sure that's happened to you in life before, right? It takes some time to discover that. Um, it's really annoying when one person discovers that and the other person insists that's not what's going on. <laughs> right? What I mean by, I don't know, important is what you meant by important, so we're not really arguing. No, we're really arguing. Okay, so that's words. Words, then there are ideas. Ideas are what words make reference to. Right? So if I say, so-and-so is an expert, right? so-and-so is a good person, so-and-so is wise, so-and-so is a king, right? All those words, expert, wise, king, make reference to an idea, right? And hopefully, they make reference to the same idea in my mind that they do in your mind, otherwise we're gonna have a hard problem communicating. That make sense? Okay. Then there's reality. We can have arguments about whether a blank is a blank, whether, whether this person is an expert, whether um, that's a, whether this person is good. And we're not arguing about 
the meaning of words. We're not just talking about words having different meanings, right? We, we, un- we are making reference to the same idea in our minds with the word, but we're disagreeing whether or not that idea is a good fit for that little part of reality. The way of thinking about this is that an idea is like a model that represents reality that you can reuse. Okay? Make this a little simplistic, but just illustrate the point, okay? You're a person, right? Now, there's an, I, now, that's a word, word person, right? That makes reference to an idea, an idea of what it is to be a person, right? Now, you are not the same as me, and neither of us are the same as my next door neighbor, right? But the fact that you're a person and I'm a person, so this idea of person is some kind of a way to think about, way to relate to you and to me, that we can kind of ignore the major differences and focus on the major similarities, right? So it's like a little model. Um, but now, is it a perfect model? I mean, even if my notion of what it is to be a person is, 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 is as perfect as could be, there's more to any one of us than just the fact that we're a person, right? Okay. So what you have to understand is that any idea is at best a representation or a model of reality. It's not reality itself. It highlights certain things, hopefully gets to the truth of certain things, but often at the expense of other things. Just to use the example of fact that, the very fact that we think about ourselves as a person emphasizes our individuality. We're also social beings, correct? Um, and that can get lost when we're thinking about ourselves as a person, that person as a person. So for instance, if you read the Chumash, one of the things you'll notice if you read the Chumash is that there's a census that is taken, yes? Several times. Um, you also notice that the census is not taken by counting individuals, it's by counting certain people and then grouping them according to families, clans, and ultimately tribes. What is that telling us about the kind of creature we are? We're not just individual persons, but we're actually also what? Communal. Right, we're communal creatures. Okay, right. Now, of course, when we think about families or households, right, which is a way that we can think about things, and sometimes in economics we do that, right? It make a lot of sense to think about it that way. For instance, I'm married. I have seven children. Um, my wife and I, we, we operate a single household, right? So for many economic reasons, it doesn't make sense to think of it. My income, my wife's income, my children's income, and average out across that, right? It doesn't make a lot of sense, right? It's better to think of it as one unit. But that misses things, right? So every idea misses something about reality and hopefully get it to the truth of something else about reality. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so... We can have sometimes disagreements about whether a blank is a blank, not because we're disagreeing about the, the meaning of a word. We, 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 we have the right concept, but we're not sure whether we think that concept does a good, or if a little bit more specific, a good enough job of get, describing certain, some truth about reality. For instance, you might say that toilets are good, and I might say, well, I mean, you know, they're, they're useful, but I don't know if good is the best idea to apply to them, right? We both know what we mean by good, we both know what we mean by useful, and we might be disagreeing which of those two ideas is better fit to describe some aspect about toilets, right? Um, those are the more interesting kind of arguments, although those arguments rarely come to some nice, clean conclusion, right? 
usually in those kind of arguments, there's usually some truth to every, every point of view because an idea which doesn't match reality at all or very sloppily easily gets discarded by most thinking people. And then there's reality itself, and it's important to realize reality itself is way too nuanced, rich, integrated, um, and, and many other adjectives for us to have any actual idea of reality itself. Let me explain to you what I mean. Um, if you think physically for a second, right, you, you can feel something is smooth, but if you were to zoom in with a microscope, you'd see it's not so smooth, right? Um, I can think of myself as an individual, but I'm also part of my family. I'm also part of the community, right? I'm also integrated into, into um, a larger you know, society in terms of government and all sorts of types of things, right? Um, I think of myself as a single thing. You can break a person down in terms of like their biological components and parts of the psyche. So the more you start to realize how nuanced and how integrated and how rich reality is, there isn't any idea is like a caricature. It gets at something at the expense of something else. And so a good way of thinking of an idea can be useful in a certain context to get at the truth of some part of reality, but reality itself always kind of is just outside what our minds can actually comprehend in its totality anyway. Does that make sense? Okay. So now we have a word, which is a central word for the time, called the Benini. That's how the chapter starts. Benini, the intermediate person. Now, we immediately run into a problem because what is a Benini? Well, Benini is a word, right? A Benini is a Hebrew word, but it's also an idea, right? There's an idea of a person being a Benini, what it is to be a Benini. But then there's the actual reality, right? The reality is that there's a person, and this person may or may not be accurately described by this concept of Benini. And we need to kind of disentangle these things, okay? Um, if I were, uh, if I were to, to stop a Hebrew speaker on the street, and I were to tell them, about, they would say that such, that, that, that so and so or such and such is a Benoni. What would they think I meant by that? Like, what do you think the idea that would, 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 that word would trigger in their mind? Before they agree or disagree. Regular. It's regular, okay. Average. Average. Not too big, not too small maybe, right? Okay. Medium. Mediocre, right? Some variation on, on, on some variation of an idea related to the concept of in between, right? Because that's actually where the word is derived from—the word bane, in between, right? So now we've, but we've actually just mentioned different things. Like, for instance, I can think of um, in between in the sense it's not to any extreme, and so therefore it commonly occurs, right? But I also think of sense of in between in terms of some kind of a scale. I'll explain to you what I mean, the difference between those two things. Um, most people you meet do not have extreme intelligence, either in the sense of extremely high intelligence or extremely low intelligence, right? It's kind of a bell curve distribution about that. On the other hand, on the other hand, if you think about something like, say, temperature, right? Most of the things that you encounter around a certain temperature, right? 
But if we think about the scales of which things can be in terms of temperature, right, they go all the way down to something called absolute zero, which is, I believe the technical term for this is very, very, very cold. And they can also be way hotter than the sun. Would you say most of the things you encounter are somewhere in between absolute zero and the, I think, hottest things can be before, like, the, the, their very physical form completely disintegrates into anything knowable? Yeah, but we are like right around the, in between those two points. Yeah. No, we're not. We're never close. We're, we're not even close to that. We're not in the middle? No, we're not in the middle. We're not in the middle. We're more close to that. What? Closer to absolute We're closer to absolute zero than to the hottest thing could ever be. Yeah. So here you have two. So if I look at some, some kind of like scale of what could be, I say, well, the middle's over here. But if I look at what I actually encounter regularly, it's over here, right? So we have these different concepts of... Right? We, we have kind of an experiential notion of middle, right? The extremes which I rarely encounter versus what I usually encounter tends to be between those extremes. And that's more of the middle, right? We also can think of it more objectively in terms of like what is the possible, greatest possible lowest and what's in the middle of that, right? And of course, this then also raises the question like what are we talking about? So if I talk about something in terms of being bainony in terms of the temperature, you want to know am I talking about in terms of cooking? Am I talking in terms of physics, Right? Um, but then if I say this, if I say something and I don't clarify, I'm talking about temperature, it gets very confusing, right? Am I talking about its size? Am I talking about its taste? But what does seem to be clear is no matter what specific concept we, we meant when we said the word benini, we meant some notion of being in between some things, right? That it wouldn't, right? Whatever, we, we've got kind of a lot of shades of the idea that the word is making reference to, which is why there can be miscommunication. But they all seem to kind of share something in common, which is probably why we use the same word for all these different concepts, which is that whatever is Bainani is in between two things, in some sense, right? Now, it could be in between two things and be very uncommon for that matter, right? There are certain things in life which are, which are, um, which are what they call a dumbbell distribution. You ever see like a purple lifting weights? So you've got the like thin bar and then these big weights on the side, called dumbbell, right? So you see that everything's on one extreme or the other extreme and very little in the middle, right? Um, an example of that would be, um, if you were to interview people and you were to ask them on a scale of one to 10, are they pro or against Nazism? Right? You would get a lot of againsts, right? You would get some, unfortunately, much more than you would like to think, fours. And how many would you get, like, are in the middle? <laughs> you don't get that. Like, those are very rare. Right? Like, not like intelligence. Intelligence tends to kind of group around the middle, right? So you, you have the, right? So, so it's important to be like, our sense of regular or expected, which sometimes correlates with things in the middle, doesn't always, right? Make sense? Okay. Um, and I think that's an important thing to first discuss is when the altar is using the term Bainani, before we get into the, where he derived the term, what is he trying to tell us about the term Bainani? It's commonality, it's frequency, how normal it is, or that it is between two other things. You see what I'm asking? Is by calling this person a bane, he meant to tell me, this is like what you should expect. This is like the normal. This is like, you know, you bump into a person, they're probably a bane in Or does he mean to say, 
there is some kind of a, a spectrum, I don't know if hierarchy is the right word, but some kind of a, some kind of a scale, a gradation of things. And the Bainani, on whatever issue we are, we, are, we are trying to describe a human being, a person, a Jew, fits somewhere in the middle between this extreme and that extreme. But that may not be common, right? So that's the first thing to understand is, is that the use of the term Bainani is meant to refer specifically to this idea of in between the extremes on some kind of a scale rather than it's meant to mean what is common and what is regular. An interesting question to which I don't know the answer is as follows. I, I think once we've learned that Tanya, it should be self-evident that there are more Rishayim, as the Altar of described, more wicked people than there are Bainanim. And there are more Rishayim than there are Tzadikim. I think that, that, that's kind of a you know, self-evident fact about life. But it is an interesting question to which I do not know the answer. Whether there are in fact more Bainanim than Tzadikim or Tzadikim than Bainanim. Now, one could make the argument that it's harder to be a tzaddik than it is to be a benini, right? So presumably, those things that are harder, there are fewer thereof. Wait, there are more tzaddikim than benini, or you don't know? I said I don't know. Oh. One could make the argument that there's, more, there's going to be fewer tzaddikim than benini because it's harder to be a tzaddik than to be a benini. On the other hand, um, there are plenty of things where, like I said before, like people's view of, say, Nazism, where kind of staying in the middle is not such a stable place and, and people tend to fall to one extreme to the other extreme, right? So it could be that, that in reality very few people actually end up being made. I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there to emphasize the point that the purpose of calling this person Bainani is to make reference to this idea of the in-betweenness, not the regularity or averageness of it. Average in the sense of like what you expect to find, not average in the mathematical sense. And therefore, it is a question, and, and it's not one we're going to have a debate about, it's not really the point of the class, is in fact numerically a Bainini more or less common than a Tzadik. Okay. okay. Now, there should be something immediately disturbing about using a word like Bainini or in between or intermediate to describe something. Why? Why should that be disturbing? Well, it depends what kind of description we have. We have, two, we have two different kinds of descriptions. We have descriptions of things which, which, which our descriptions are um, not meant to ha be describing what something is, but the degree to which it has a particular thing. So, for instance, I would say that some people are bigger physically, some people are smaller physically, and some people are in the middle, right? That'd be fair? Because, say, height or weight or volume, whichever one of those you meant, physical size, um, is something that fluctuates. It moves up and down. There's more or there's less. But it would be weird if I said that um, I took two different things, which are, which are fundamentally different in what they are. Say, for instance, a chair and a book. And I said, well, what's in between a chair and a book? That's weird, right? Because chairness is like one thing and bookness is something else and, and you know, 
know, so I say, so if, yeah, if I say, okay, well, those chairs and books are, 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 are entities in themselves. We're talking about kinds of people. So, okay, the same thing. So if I say, I have two kinds of people. I have a, a wise person and a strong person. What's in between a wise person and a strong person? It's just different things, right? Right? And now if I were to say, well, okay, so let's take something that's, say, wise, and um, I'm going to use the word just because it's, it's clear and to the point. And it also um, has a meaning without being politically correct, which is stupid. So we're going to have a wise person and a stupid person. What's in between a wise person and a stupid person? Okay, but here's the thing. Does that really describe anything about the person? Or are you just... So this is why I use the word stupid. If I say that, the, if I say that a person is wise, okay, that means something to you, right? Whatever wise means, but there's a quality of wisdom, right? Whatever that is, and this person possesses it, right? If I just say this person is not wise, well, that's okay, they're lacking in wisdom. But when I say they're stupid, what does that tell you? I mean, we don't, it's, it's, the, the reason why I use the words is it's insulting, right? As I'm saying something insulting about the person, right? Whereas if I say the person isn't wise, okay, obviously with, with tone of voice and with context, I could be implying something. I'm not, I'm not talking about the rhetorical effect of it. Just, just the person is lacking in wisdom. Okay, the person is lacking in wisdom, but wisdom is something, you know, very few people, we would say this is a wise person, right? So most people lack in wisdom. It doesn't really tell me much about them, right? It's like going to tell you, this person is not a tennis player. Okay, very nice. <laughs> Most people are not tennis players, right? Right? And like, like once I move past like the need to make everyone feel good, right? If, if we were to like just think about every single person we've encountered, how many of them would you say, yes, that's a wise person? 10%? 20%? 30%? Think about everybody you've ever met. Would you say 20% of the people you've met, one out of every five people you've met is wise? What? One out of every ten people is wise? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Depends on what you mean by wise. Good. It does mean what I mean by like, wise. Because you could say that everybody has wisdom that you could learn from. Okay. From a wise person. Okay. But then we're not saying sudden substance. Then it's back to going saying something like, like tall and short, right? We're not saying something. Like, I, I, I picked wisdom as a, as a human characteristic, which we, can, which we can. That's why I didn't say intelligence, actually. Because intelligence, I think, is something that is very, like, you know... Like, there, there's no person who's totally lacking in intelligence unless they're comatose, right? I mean, even animals exhibit some intelligence. Wisdom is a little something different. So let me be clear about what I mean by wisdom, okay? Um, one of the corollaries of, of wise people, of, some, of someone possessing wisdom, is that you present them with questions and problems to get advice and answers and solutions even though they do not necessarily have the information to provide the answer before you ask the question. Can you repeat that? You will, the, person, the person who's wise is a person who it would make sense to ask, for question, ask them questions, get advice from, even though they do not have the information ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if I call up my accountant and ask him, can I do something with, in terms of how I file my taxes, I'm asking him because he has learned some piece of information that I have not, right? And it's faster for me to get it from him than it is for me to do the research myself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but 
when two doctors, one consults the other, they both have the same experience, they both have the same knowledge, they both have the same training, and one is confronted with a patient that he cannot figure out what's wrong with him, right? And he presents it to the second doctor who has no more information than the first doctor. Why is he presenting that question to the second doctor? He feels that the doctor has some ability, at least within the realm of medicine, to see things differently, to put things in a different perspective that that might get at the solution. And that makes them wise? Well, that, that, that's wisdom in a very limited scope. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, if we think more broadly, right, a person who... Uh, the, 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 I mean, we can think of wisdom as a thing that has many dimensions in its own right, right? But if we think of a wise person, right? A wise person, you might, for instance, a wise person probably does not have tremendous strife between them and their spouse, right? That's probably an aspect of them being wise. You're wise, you'd probably figure out how to work things out with your spouse, right? And I would say then you're not wise. That's... was going back to the issue of words and ideas, right? I'm not talking about intelligence. Now, what if if the spouse is a horrible person who's not interested in it? You still figure, if you're wise, you figure out how to deal with that. Is wisdom like a sense you're saying? More than... Wisdom... What? It's definitely nothing to do with IQ. But you're saying it's more like a sense? It, it's, it, 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 I, if I say it's a sense, does that help you? Does it give you more information? Okay, eyesight is also a sense, right? It's not eyesight. No, but Although it's, like it's measurable. It's like something that you can Everything see. is measurable. It's just you have to figure out the right test to measure it. Sure, it's measurable. Everything is measurable. <laughs> okay. You can measure wisdom. It's very simple. You want to know how to measure wisdom? You ask people advice. You follow their advice. <laughs> you see how effective the advice is. Then you start grading it. I mean, you can make a very simple measure, which is how often does it work or fail, right? You can make a more complex measure by, by dividing the device into different areas, right? So people can be wise and you should make multiple dimensions. I mean, the same way they devised and tests for general intelligence. You can, you can do it. Just, nobody has done that because there isn't a financial incentive to do so. Um, I mean, think about it. When you ask somebody for advice and their advice seems not to work very well, time and time again, do you keep coming back to them? So you're, right? But the thing I want to point out is that I'm using advice as a, as a symptom, as a sign of wisdom um, at, only when the advice that the person is giving is not simply just the repeating information that they have before you, right? That they might have never actually thought about the problem before you presented it to them. So they have, and this is actually why in Hebrew, wise people are called um, um, the, the eyes of the community, is that they see things differently than other people. They have a different perspective. You want to call that a sense, you can call it a sense. But it's an aspect of the mind, and you can see certain kids are wiser than other kids. Like certain kids pick up very quickly what's going on without being told. And certain kids are not, so click on the uptake. Um, you know, and you see this in, 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 in you know, in, in all sorts of areas. Again, okay, so now you have this thing called wisdom, okay? They have people who are stupid, right? They, they don't, they, they, they exhibit all of the signs of the, of, of, of kind of the opposite, right? They keep doing the same things over and over again, expecting different results. Um, they they're, don't think very critically about themselves or other people, 
right? They rush to judgment. They're convinced that the only the way they see things is the only right way, right? Have you ever had a conversation with someone like this? Okay. Then you add a lack of intelligence, makes it worse, right? Because you can't even reason with them. Okay. So now, are most people really wise? No. Are, right. Are most like most people really stupid? No. Okay. So if I say this person isn't wise, okay. Saying they're not a tennis player. I mean, anybody can pick up, again, assuming you're reasonably healthy, you can pick up a tennis racket and hit a ball, right? But we all understand that when we say when we, when we say someone's a tennis player, we're meaning something a lot more substantive, right? So again, I mean, using always the same thing. So if you say someone isn't a tennis player, okay, fine, I don't know what that, doesn't tell me very much about them. If you say someone isn't wise, it doesn't tell me very much about them. Again, unless I'm using it rhetorically as a way of being nice and not saying stupid, right? But if I really mean just mean they're not wise, they're not stupid, they're like everybody else. Okay, fine, they're like everybody else. So they're in between wise and stupid, but what does that tell me about them? Nothing. Nothing. So if I'm taking something which is like very fixed, and I say, okay, there's height, right? So there's taller, right? They're shorter. And I say, well, this person is, is, is shorter than this person, but taller than that person, they're in between. Okay, fine. That tells me something, right? But if I take something which is a characteristic which only a very small number of people have, and I have kind of the antithesis of that characteristic, right? It doesn't really tell me much about them. And I can now take like a moral characteristic. Like, like if I were to say someone is a good person, I were to mean that in a much more substantive way. Like this, actually, let, 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 let's not use good because good is too vague. Let's take something. This person is an honest person. And again, I mean that substantively. So describe an honest person, a substance that's where you would say like, the first attribute that comes to mind about this person, they're honest. What, 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 would, what would you say? What, what kind of person would that be? They don't lie. They don't lie. What if it's really inconvenient to not lie? What if they suffer serious financial burden by not lying? They still don't lie. Right, now how many people do we know like that? We know it's probably some, right, to some degree, but your average person, Quite comfortable telling lies as long as? No, I'm not. Even if people find out as long as? It's socially acceptable. Socially acceptable, right? Socially acceptable lies, right? Okay, what about a dishonest person? Would we describe most people as dishonest? No. No, because no. when we say they're dishonest, and we mean that kind of more substantively, what do we mean? Yeah, like for them, truth isn't even a value. They'll, they'll, if they can get away with a lie or it's worthwhile for them to lie, they'll lie with no compunction, right? Most people, are they like that? So most people are somewhere between honest and dishonest, right? Well, what does that tell you about the person? What does that tell you about the person? Being somewhere between honest and dishonest. It doesn't really tell you much, right? You see what I'm saying? Like, like describing some, like, it doesn't, to say, oh, this is, they're bainany. Like, okay, like, like, so what does that tell me? Nothing. Not really much of anything. So it's weird that the central figure of the Tanya, the Tanya's describing the life of a person who can be described when it comes to something in terms of their relationship with God, religion, their soul, whatever, is described as Bainani. What is that supposed to mean? Yes, you you can measure anything, but there's a but 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 so okay, so you can measure anything. Let me disentangle two different things to make it a little, a little clearer. Okay, if I were to tell you like this, I met somebody. His name was Joe. 
That's it. That's all you know. What do you assume reasonably about Joe? Do you assume reasonably about Joe that Joe is an honest person? Like, really honest? No, you wouldn't reasonably assume that. Would you reasonably assume that Joe is a dishonest person? No, you wouldn't reasonably assume that. What would you assume about Joe? He exists as a man. I'm asking what you would assume. Not what you know. What you assume. What would be reasonable for you to assume? In terms of the honesty issue. You wouldn't assume that he's honest, right? You would assume things. But you do all the time, because you meet people all the time and you make assumptions about them. You would assume that he's neither super honest. Nor dishonest. You would assume that he's somewhere in between. And so what do you know about him? Nothing more than any other human being, right? You just kind of treat him as generic. Right? You see what I'm saying? So it doesn't like... There's nothing like... There's nothing substantive being said by saying Joe is, by saying I met a guy named Joe or saying I met a guy named Joe who is somewhere between honest and dishonest. Like adding somewhere between honest and dishonest doesn't add more information really than what I already took for granted when I just said I met a guy named Joe, right? You see what I'm saying? It doesn't, so it's weird to then make that a title, to make that a thing. Like, like, just, just leave it just that that's just a regular person. He's not an astronaut. Right? Is it like saying this person is neither tall nor short, but versus if you said they're in between this height and this height? Right, if I say they're between this height and this height, which is like, again, a measuring type of thing, that's meaningful because now like I have a specific range, right? But if I say I met a guy named Joe, right? Yeah. You wouldn't assume that Joe's a midget. You wouldn't assume that Joe is eight feet tall or even seven feet tall, right? Right? It's the same, right? Now, the, the reason, the, so, so, so when you think of things in terms of measurements and you add a measuring component, right? You could measure anything. When you're measuring things, you turn it into numbers. And numbers aren't substantive. They're not meaningful, right? They're just, I have a scale. On the scale, where is he? But when I turn it from, from to ideas, right? Well, being on the up end of the honesty scale really means something fundamentally different than it does to be on the bottom end. And everyone else in the middle doesn't really mean much of anything, right? Like if someone was really honest, really, really honest, right? And you knew that, you would trust them no matter what they said, right? And if someone was really dishonest and you knew that, you would distrust them regardless of what they said, right? But what if they're not really honest, or they're not really dishonest, they're just in between, they're regular. So you don't autom- automatically trust or distrust them, right? It depends on the context and what's going on, right? And a bunch of other factors, and that's kind of how we live life. So you're not saying anything substantive, you're not saying anything meaningful. You haven't, you haven't contributed to my awareness of the person by saying they're in between dishonest honest and dishonest, right? If I'm, you haven't contributed anything by telling me this person isn't isn't really tall and isn't really short. Again, if you give me like a specific number, he's between here and there, okay, that's something different because now I have like numbers. And with height, numbers can actually be relevant in a way that like, like if I, like you, if you use intelligence, which is like something you can measure with the IQ test, depending on, we're gonna ignore whether, how, how accurate it is or not. Let's just assume it's accurate. That, that's useful in terms of the measuring, right? But. But there are certain like substantive things that are very different that simply knowing where you are on the scale doesn't mean anything else in order to interpret the scale. For instance, if you have an IQ below 80, what does that mean? Other than you're not so intelligent. 
Anyone know? What? It basically means you can't function in the, in, in the world independently. You won't, you'll probably not be able to like live life and, and hold down a, a job, pay your bills. It might be 75. I don't know if it's 75 or 80, but you're going to need like actual assistance in order to be able to, to provide for yourself because the kind of things that you need to do in the world in order to provide a livelihood for yourself require a certain degree of intelligence of which you are lacking. Like, now that's not a number. That's like a substantive thing, right? It's a good to have a name for that, right? We used to have a name for that that became pejorative. We changed it to a different name that became pejorative. And that's what happens because it's not so like, that's why I use the example of stupid, right? Um, well, stupid is also pejorative. Now it's just a word we say. I know. Um, now, what if you have... Um, you know, so, so so there's these things where like it's not just the, if you're on this side or on that side it means something. From the middle it doesn't really mean much. It's just regular, right? So it's weird then to say this is the bainani and then how the whole book to the bainani. Like it's weird, right? If bainani is a word that means in between two things, right? And we're using the word in a way that we're trying to say this is something substantive, something meaningful, right? Well, what what are we what are we what are what are we saying about this person? We're just saying that they're not this extreme and they're not that extreme. Well, that that can't be it because if that's it, then there's no reason to give them a title and a name and a definition, right? Isn't isn't banning about like the reason it's called the banning because the fact that he's in between two such distinct. Um, people is already characteristic. Like some things, it's very hard to be in between. Okay. Okay. Like if you'd say um, this person's not healthy, but also it's somewhere between healthy and not healthy, like that, or like like that's that's like what does that mean? That's all that already is saying. So okay. So what, what you what, this is exactly what I'm going with. What you're saying is that by using a word "bainy" to describe something, some we're trying to get an idea. Where the idea is not just a description of it happens to be in between here and here, but somehow there's something significant about it being in between. There's something maybe counterintuitive, something difficult, something unstable, something about that that is worth pointing out. Otherwise, right? Why label? Why why, why have this whole idea to begin with? Right? You're, the word makes reference to an idea. What is it about this person that you're trying to point out by saying Bainan? Okay, so. The, I'm going to give you a context for the word bainani that's, that's not Baal context. Okay? The Gemara attracted Rosh Hashanah and the Rambam says as follows, that on Rosh Hashanah God judges a person. If their merits outweigh their sins, they are declared a tzaddik, a righteous person, and are rewarded. God writes them into the book of life. If, on the other hand, God forbid, their, their sins outweigh their merits, they're declared a rasha, and God writes them, God forbid, in the book of death. Punishment. Okay. And on the face of it, 
everybody would fit into one of two categories, right? Either righteous or wicked. Why? Because either the sins are greater than the merits, and the merits are greater than the sins, right? Now, upon reflection, though, you immediately say, wait a minute. There is a possibility, slight, but there is a possibility that what? It's a draw. It's a draw, right? Am I playing chess against you? Either I win or you win. You say, right. And you say, wait a minute. No, no. There is a theoretical possibility that no one wins. It's a draw, right? Right? So some things lend themselves to dichotomies, right? And the fact that there is a third option in between those two things actually is not readily apparent and requires some deeper perspective. That makes sense? Okay. By the way, in that context, what, what, is, what happens for a Benini, a person who's in between, he's neither a tzaddik nor a rasha, his sins and merits are equally balanced on Rosh Hashanah? Anyone know? He's given 10 days to switch to more merits than sins, and if so, he's written the book of life, if not, written to the book of death. Right. So that's actually an interesting thing, right? Is that, is that the, the, the equal balance there is understood to give the person the opportunity to tilt the scales, but in the absence of tilting the scales, it's tilted the other way for the person. Right. Um, right. And there are many things in life, when you think of that, that our mind naturally moves towards a dichotomous way of thinking, a black and white thinking, and it actually requires a certain level of depth and reflection to realize that there is a middle path, right? Okay. In fact, let's go back to the honesty, dishonesty question. When you're a little child, little child, how many kinds of people are there? Really honest people, really dishonest people, and then just regular people? There's... There's honest people, of which everyone fits into that category. And then there's these special dishonest people who you've never really met in real life for the most part if you're a child, but you've heard stories about them, right? And the, you know, everyone, everyone is good or evil kind of a thing, right? And then it becomes quite difficult for the child to restructure their mind around the idea that actually very few people are really honest, very few people are dishonest, and most people are in the middle. And they actually have to learn to deal with that, right? In the process of becoming, uh, you know, as you mature. Now, once you're an adult already, that becomes kind of almost, you know, a foregone conclusion, right? So you kind of almost may even forget, right? When you go in and speak to a child, and I was, I was speaking to, to um, not about honesty, about dishonesty, but about, about other issues with one of my kids. Uh, she's seven, yeah, she's seven. And it was very hard for her to understand that like people don't fit into the nice categories of good versus evil. But if this person is like this, then how could they do that? And what's the answer? People, right? People are people are rarely good or evil. Full stop, right? So it makes sense to create a category of in-between when the in-between is is breaking out of a, of a dichotomy that you're naturally inclined to. Does that make sense? It makes sense to have a category called in-between when you're naturally inclined only to see two extremes. 
So I'm just to, just to summarize what we've been saying, okay? If I naturally think of everybody as either a hero or a villain, is it helpful for someone to come along and say there's actually something which is kind of in between a hero and a villain? Is that helpful for someone to come up with a new category in order to sh- break me out of my black and white thinking? Yes. But if it's intuitive to me that most people are neither heroes nor villains, and only very few people are actually heroes and actual villains, then does it really make sense for that to be a category? Or that's just like generic person? In other words, the, I, the, the very idea that I have a word to make reference to the idea is because that idea is useful to me. What is useful to me about it is that the, the, the useful thing about labeling something as this is substantively in between is because the very notion that there is an in between is not an intuitive way that we process that particular part of reality. In this case, something about people. Like, what do you call somebody? Um, what do, you call, what, what, do you, what do you call somebody who can lift very, very, very heavy things? Call them strong, right? What do you call somebody who can, can't lift even the most ordinary objects? Weak. What do you call the rest of us? You know, we don't have a word for that, right? We don't even bother saying we're in between. We just, because that's intuitively obvious to all of us, right? So the Altarab is telling us by, by, by using this word, which is that this idea here of the Bainani is something that is counterintuitive. It breaks a dichotomous way of thinking. That we're naturally inclined to think of things one way or the other way. And the very idea that there is a Bainani is not obvious. Now, I want to point something out. So if you'll open your text and look inside. Um... This is, this, is, this is not a proof of anything, but just an, an, an interesting observation. So I would like to look through the paragraphs of chapter 12 where we get an introduction to the Bainani. Okay? So if you look... Um, the first paragraph starts with the word the. The second paragraph starts with the word only. The third paragraph starts with which word? The fourth paragraph starts with the word. The fifth paragraph starts with the word, thus is written. And the sixth paragraph starts with. Nevertheless. Okay, what are the words, however, nevertheless? What do those words mean? Contrary to what you thought. Contrary to what you thought. So I said something. But contrary to that, there's actually something else. But contrary to that, there's something else, right? What, what, what is the flow of this chapter going to be? I don't even, what is the flow of the chapter going to be? Is he going to say like very clearly, this is the idea of the Bainani, it's X. Or he's going to say, well, it's X, but, but, but not really like that, because it, it's on the, somehow something like that. But, but not really like that, because it's also like that. He keeps, throughout the chapter, what are we going to see? Is every time we want to kind of take the train of thought in one direction, what is the altar going to do? You're going too far, right? Right. And, and that I think illustrates a little bit of this idea that the bainani is as a concept is a concept that is fighting with an intuitive way of of thinking. The intuitive way of thinking is that there's only two categories, and introducing the bainani is a 
way of breaking that dichotomy. It's breaking that black and white thinking. Yeah. So what's new about the Oh, that's exactly what I'm now I'm talking about. Like, so now, now that I've talked about this thing, which I took a lot longer than I planned on, but okay, how, how should that we put that in context? Well, I think most of us as adults understand that most people are not um, a, a righteous person in, in any deep sense. In other words, I think we all understand. No, Tanya, we all understand that, yes, when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, Hashem judges us good deeds, bad deeds, right? We all understand that in that context, everyone's either a tzaddik or a rasha or possibly until Yom Kippur or Benini, right? But if we're talking about the person as a whole, I think we all understand that it's wrong to consider most people a tzaddik because most people have failings and most people do the wrong things from time to time. Most people struggle and blah, 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 right? And it's also wrong to think of most people as a wicked person because most people don't embrace evil, whether in a religious sense or in a moral sense or in a social sense, Right? Most of the evil that people encounter is something that they're conflicted about, they struggle, they overcome, they fail, right? I think that's something that, that every human being that is, is above, you know, the age of, you know, 12 probably has some sense of, right? And if you reflect on it, you don't need to think of a book to realize that. Um, does that make sense? Okay, but but so now what I what I, what I, what 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 I want to do is I want to put the Tanya and, and the idea that Zabani and, and the significance of that that there's, there's an in between category into context first by talking about the spiritual notion, the religious concept, and then the psychological concept. Of that. How do we define a tzaddik in Tanya? What was the characteristic of a person that makes them a tzaddik? So if you go back, and you don't have it in front of you, so, but if you go back to chapter 10, yeah. it says when evil is eradicated from the left side of their heart. When the animal soul has been defeated. And then we, 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 we subdivide, there's the complete side, the incomplete side, I don't want to go into those nuances right now. right? But when the godly soul has taken control of the life of the person in, in the entirety, that would be tzaddik. How do we do define the rasha? Did we define the rasha as the total takeover of the person by the animal soul and there's no room for the godly soul to find any expression? No. Just the mere fact that the animal soul, right, is able to curtail the expression of the godly soul already makes the person a rasha. So you have here. Said, if the godly soul is a hundred percent, that's a tzaddik. If the animal soul has even a little bit of say in the matter, is already a rasha. In other words, there's a kind of a purity test here, right? There's only two categories: pure water and impure water. If we're referred to be pure water, it has to contain nothing other than water. If it contains anything else other than water, it's not pure water, right? We've kind of created tzaddik and. We've, we've, a of tzaddik, which is a purity, right? Where, where the godly soul has absolute sovereignty over the life of the person and any control, any, any, any influence, any, any inhibition that the godly soul has to contend with from the animal soul, any restriction the animal soul puts on it seems to put the person in the category of Russia. 
So does there, on the face of that, seem to be a, any middle ground? No. Okay. Now, what I want to do is move to the psychological and then maybe move back to the religious afterwards. I think most of us understand that we are not righteous people, right? Even without the Tanya, right? Would you, I mean, you know, if you think about a righteous person, um, first off, honesty, right? A righteous person is going to be honest. What else is going to be true about a righteous person? We need some other characteristics. No Tanya, no, 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 just, just basic thinking about what we think about it makes a person a righteous person. I give you honesty, we discussed honesty. What else would be, what other characteristics would a person have to have who would say that this is really a righteous person? Giving. Giving. Can I add a word, selfless giving? Right? Well, there's, there's giving as a means to get stuff out of it, but that's not what you meant, right? right. What else? Sensitivity to others. Sensitivity to others, what else? Would you say such a person is indulgent? They do things, even if they don't harm other people, but they do things just because it feels good without any higher purpose? No, they're probably not indulgent. Okay, so you have to ask yourself, how many people do we know or know of that we'd say they are really honest, they are really selflessly giving, they are very sensitive, and they are not, and they are not indulgent, even, you know, just really, that's, that's who they are, that's how they live their life. That's a pretty rare thing, right? Okay. You have to be either actually righteous or kind of delusional to think of yourself as righteous in that kind of a sense, right? Okay. So I think if I you know, had a room of 100 people and I said, raise your hand if you would consider yourself a truly righteous person, right? Really righteous. I don't think anybody would raise their hand. But if I switch the question around slightly with a different word, I think I would have a different answer. Raise your hand if you think you're a good person. How many people think would raise their hand? Probably everybody would raise their hand. Now, there may be some outliers and whatever, right? Some people might actually not think they're a good person, but be so embarrassed to admit that they would raise their hand. So what do we mean by a good person as opposed to a righteous person? You see that split? That, like, like if I put it in terms of righteous, that, that word refers to a very different concept than our word for good. When I say good person, oh, Good person is, a, is an idea which does, char- which, 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 which does characterize me and you. And, you know. So what do we mean by a good person as opposed to a righteous person? Good as ever. Well, that's what really what we mean. A righteous person, that's like an absolute good means like you have good in you. You have good in you? You want to be good. You want to be good. Oh, there's a, so that's one element I say is aspirational. One element of what we say is good, when we talk about a good person as opposed to a righteous person, is we tend to think of good as having an aspirational quality. I as- I'm good because of where I would like to be, even if I'm not actually there yet. Which I don't think many of us would feel comfortable saying, I'm righteous because I would like to be a certain way, even though I'm not that way. Okay, what else? Is it enough just to like aspire? But I wish it were so. Or do we feel like you probably need to take a few steps in that direction? Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, it's more than just aspiration. It's maybe, maybe more directional, right? The direction in which you're trying to move your life. Um, 
Does it allow for some backsliding? Yeah. Does it allow for some major backsliding? As long as it's not, you know, consistent and habitual, right? So, like, I think most of us would understand, and if we were to calm down, I think we would really be able to empathize with a person who committed a very, very horrible crime, one off, in a kind of a circumstance where things spiraled out of control, maybe through a series of bad choices, could still honestly say, I, I'm a good, but I'm a good person. Right? The person makes one little mistake, then they cover that mistake, and then things got out of control, and they do something really, really wrong. Right. And so I, I think the time where most of us would have a hard time with this is when the person fully embraces, you know, negative behavior, negative choices, right? And then she's to see themselves as a good person, right? Then we say, okay, there's some kind of hypocrisy going on there. Right? So so when we think of ourselves as good people and other people as good people, we're thinking of something a lot more internal and nuanced and, and, and personal and directional than just righteous. Now, in the context of Tanya, the term righteous doesn't have to do with your behavior, does it? It doesn't have to do with... Um, how often, it doesn't even have to do with your characteristics per se. It has to do with something about what your life is really about. Someone whose life is about connecting to God is a tzaddik. And someone whose life is ultimately, their connection to God is being subordinated by some other consideration is called wicked, right? If you really take that to heart... Can you really take that message seriously, internalize it, and then go around and say, I'm a good person, when you're letting your animal soul dictate how you live your life? In other words, I can say I'm a good person if I take the Tanya's religious idea and leave it as a theoretical matter, right? Right? And people do, bring this down, I do this on, on, a, on a practical level, right? I can say that I'm a good person, even if I habitually litter and like just, just all the time. I throw stuff in the, in the street, in the ground, right? No consideration. Say I'm a good person. And you say, well, what about your littering? You just litter with abandon. You don't, you don't even care. You don't even try to do better. It's not even something you, you, you concede you should work on. You say, well, I don't think littering, you know, it's, it's a very lofty thing. It's not for me. It's not it's, this expression. It's not, it's, not part, it's not on that level. So in other words, what I've done is I've disassociated myself from not having any sort of moral weight to my self-image. And then I can allow myself to just ignore that, right? But what if I took littering seriously? I thought that was actually an important part about being like a good person, giving is how you live in society and you're, what you're doing is affecting the quality of life of other people and that's something to take seriously. What if I really let that sink in? I might still think of myself as a good person even though I litter, but I couldn't think of myself as a good person and litter, and, and litter habitually and callously. I might slip up and litter. I might be a habit I'm working on breaking. I might say I should break it, but I have more pressing things I'm working on first. Right? There's a lot of reasons why I could still actually be littering and thinking of myself a good person. But I couldn't just dismiss the fact that I'm littering, consider myself a good person, and also think that littering is an important part of being a person in society. Right? Th th those three don't go together. So 
I can say, look, I keep Shabbos. I try to be honest. You know, more or less, not too extreme. I try and, you know, I try and pray. I keep kosher, right? Etc., etc., etc. Try to work on my character traits, be more generous, not get angry so often, etc., etc., etc. And so I'm a good person, right? And I slip up and I stumble and I maybe do things wrong. Maybe sometimes I sin major sins, sometimes I sin minor sins, but I'm a good person. I, the Alter says this whole lofty idea of the animal's soul is really governing the whole person's life. That's, that's a very lofty idea. It's not for me. It's like a very lofty higher truth. And if I have that attitude, right, I can continue to keep in mind that I can continue to keep the self-image I'm a good person, right? Even though I'm not, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a righteous person. I wouldn't say I'm a paragon of religious or spiritual virtue. But I'm also not like such a bad person, you know. That seems like a pretty reasonable way that a person could relate to this. But if a person really let it sink in, I ought to be a tzaddik. Being a rush is not acceptable, right? If the sense of which soul is really sovereign in my life truly touched me, could I, not being a tzaddik, continue to think of myself as a good person? Or when I think of myself as maybe some sort of tragic victim of circumstance or a fail, like, like I couldn't continue thinking of myself as a good person. And it's not intuitively obvious that there is room out of that dichotomy unless I'm going to become a tzaddik. But like I'm not going to delude myself into being a tzaddik when I know I'm not. So now what? No, no. No, what I'm saying is like this. What I'm saying is that if you take to heart, I'm working the reverse. If you take to heart what it is to be a tzaddik, what it is to be a rasha, you have a serious problem, which is you cannot. You 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 you're faced with a dichotomy, which is. Either I delude myself into thinking that I'm a tzaddik, which I'm not, or I consign myself to the fact that I'm a rasha and I no longer think of myself as a good person. Those are my two options. My third option is to just relegate the whole, this, all this information to the realm of theory and not take it to heart. I could do that. But if I do take it to heart, I'm left with these two options on the face of it. There doesn't seem... There doesn't, there doesn't, there doesn't, there doesn't seem to be that kind of a, of a place. Now, why is it so important to think of yourself as a good person? So you don't get discouraged. That's right. There's, there, it's another words like this. It is impossible if you, and this goes back to the idea of righteous versus. Versus good. If you, remember how we said how good has this aspirational quality? If you think of yourself as a good person, you have the groundwork to, to grow and to live and to, to improve. And, right? and if you don't, if you, but if you think of yourself as fundamentally a bad person, right, then you're going to have a problem. Okay? Does that make sense? 
If you, now, I, we don't have it here, but the, but the Tanya actually opens up with the following question. The Tanya opens up. They administer an oath to a person before he's born, be righteous and do not be wicked. Be attacked, don't be Russia. If the whole world tells you that you're righteous, regard yourself as if you were wicked, as if you're Russian. Then he has a textual question, which I'm going to skip, and he says like this. If a person considers himself to be wicked, he will be grieved at heart and depressed and will not be able to serve God joyfully and with a content heart. And if he is not perturbed by this, it may lead him to irreverence God forbid. What's Salter been describing? Salter's describing if being wicked and righteous is not a... Now, you have to... This question, the way he's phrased this question, on the surface doesn't make sense. What do you mean? I think I'm doing things wrong because I'm doing things wrong. I'm a wicked person. I need to change. He's talking about something deeper. If I think that righteousness and wickedness is connected to this idea of the, of, of the direction that my life is in, what's governing me in my life. And I also come to the realization that to be righteous is something that is so pure that it's absolutely beyond any sense of attainability. Then I kind of consign myself to the fact that like, no matter how good I do, no matter how well I act, Fundamentally, I'm not a good person. Fundamentally, driven by the evil of the animal soul. That's what's governing me in my life. And once a person lets that set in, there can be no, no drive to, 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 to really grow and live in their Judaism. Unless they stop taking the whole thing seriously, in which case they're obviously not going to grow in their Judaism because they stopped caring. So... When the Altar says there's a Baini, the Altar is breaking this dichotomy and saying there is actually a reality of a person who is not a Russia, not being governed by their animal soul, and yet simultaneously they have not attained that purity of being that is, that is intrinsic to what it is to be a tzaddik. And if you can break out of this black and white thing and realize that there is such a state of being, then you will see you are able to acknowledge that you're not a tzad, that can acknowledge the animal soul, etc., etc., while simultaneously thinking of yourself as a good person and therefore having the enthusiasm and the drive to serve God properly. And the thing is, even if you've learned Tanya for a long time, it's very different having information versus having an actual perspective in life. The natural state of a people is that we fall into, when we start talking about these kind of inner drives, inner governing things, not just particular behaviors, we tend to fall into thinking of ourselves as either a good person or a bad person. And if good has been defined with any sort of sense of purity, then by default, everything else becomes bad. And this is, this is uh, uh, we're running down the class, I just want to put, this is a very important point. There's a kind of religious way of thinking where you defined we define things from a perspective of purity. Purity means that there can't be anything mixed in, anything, any, 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 anything contaminating it. There's a secular way of looking at things which rejects the idea of purity. What's the advantage of rejecting the idea of purity? Well, uh, something doesn't cancel out the other thing. Well, right, you now have freedom to allow good being a good person, right? To, to actually much more match up the, the, the complexities and the, and the failings and the, and, 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 and the mess that exists in the life of a human being, right? It's much more human-oriented. What's the downside of the secular viewpoint? 
Because you have tolerance for bad. So that's a, that's, a, that's a secondary concept. I'm not talking about a more primary thing because that you can like come up with solutions and work around or whatever. Um, the real issue that I want to say is like this. If you rejected the idea of purity, you rejected the idea that there's something absolute, then you've, you've removed something that is intrinsically good. There's no room for God. There's no room for. There's no room for. There's no room for abs- There's no room for absolute truth. There's no room for ultimate purpose if you don't allow for a notion of purity. Because when you have a notion of when you, when you ha- like, we go back to the descriptions of the tzaddik. Right? What was the tzaddik? The tzaddik was a person, right? Their whole life, their inner life, their whole life is what is God, the purpose of their existence. That's it, right? There's nothing else. Right? The minute I relegate the notion of a tzaddik as a theoretical idea or a mythical idea or just whatever, because human beings aren't like that, what I've essentially said is all of the truth on all of the, 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 the importance and the beauty of what the tzaddik's life is centered around, namely God, really has no place. In other words, when you get rid of pure, purity as being part of the human experience, you've also gotten rid of God as, 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 part, of, as, as part of your life. Now you have a problem here, a very serious problem, right? Because I can have a very humanistic, secular point of view, which is, you know, human beings are messy, human beings are complicated, we have to strive, we have to struggle, right? And to be better people. But, but perfect is divine, let's that's, that's be honest, that's theoretical, that's nothing to do. Or I can say, no, you know, be connecting to God, being godly, being divine, that's a real thing. Take a more religious point of view. But then I have a question of how I'm going to deal with the the, the, the mess of a human being. One way of doing that is you reduce the notion of purity to make it more attainable, right? So, for instance, you think of the classic Orthodox Jewish viewpoint. I was about to say modern Orthodox, but I didn't mean modern Orthodox as a movement. Orthodoxy in the modern incarnation, which is, what is perfect if you keep Shabbos, if you keep kosher, you, you, know, you keep all the things it says in Halacha, right? And on top of that, you're decent to your, you know, the people you work with, and you're decent to your spouse, and you're decent to your children, you made it, right? Which is fine. I mean, it's not a bad thing, but, but that's a far cry from the absolute truth of God. And so the Alter Rebbe, by calling the person a Benini, and, 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 and it, it, there's, there's, a, there's a way in which the Alter Rebbe is saying, he's saying there is the absolute truth. There is the purity of the tzaddik. That is what ought to be. Don't ever forget that. And then there is the Russia, someone who's living their life governed by their animal soul. And that can look very religious and very holy and very spiritual, all these things, but at the end of the day, it's all corrupt at its core. And don't, don't you know, whitewash that. Don't make that sound better than it is. And yet, those are not the only two options. It's possible to escape the escape the the, the, the the corruption of being a Russia, even though you haven't attained the purity of being a tzaddik. And if you really take that to heart and care about that, that is something that is constantly revolutionary. Because the mind, the mind and this and, and the psyche of a person are not naturally inclined to experience themselves that way. 
And so even when a person is 70, 80 years old, they've been learning and living tiny their whole life, the idea that the bainini is a bainini is still something that feels experientially something they have to constantly reinforce within themselves, maintain within themselves. It's not something the mind naturally goes to. And the other thing that also, that also means something else. If a bainini ever becomes an idea that you become very intuitively comfortable with in life, you should start to be suspicious that you've corrupted the idea of the bainini. Maybe what, you've, maybe what you've done is you've legitimized your own failings under the name of struggle, under the name of the Bainini. You know? Well, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm just a Bainini. But the Bainini is not a, ta- not a Russia, right? They're not a Russia. Right? The Russia's over here. They're, not, they're, they're, they're outside that category. And on the other hand, the Bainini is not a topic. And the more a person takes that notion of which soul is governing me and realizing that it feels like if I take that seriously, I only have two options, then the more they, the more the, the author is calling this person a baby becomes something they have to constantly like reinforce and re, re, um, make something that that that, that stays with them because it's not intuitive. Now, if I put it on a board and a chart and explain it, that can be, on a theoretical basis, very intuitive. I'm talking about as an experiential thing, it's not intuitive at all. A person can work and work and work and work and work and work and work not to be a Russia. They're not a Russia. And yet they feel and experience things that clearly indicate they're not a tzaddik and they fall right back to the feeling that they're a Russia, even though they're not. Something... Because our minds naturally fall into this black and white type of a thinking. And so to take really, really seriously, I, I as a Jew ought to be a tzaddik. I as a Jew cannot allow myself to be a Russia, and yet there's some space in between those things. If a tzaddik means I'm governed by my godly soul, and a Russian means I'm governed by an animal soul. And governed by an animal soul doesn't mean 100% of that. It means even once in a while, the animal soul makes its presence known in a way that inhibits the godly souls. Already means I'm under complete control of the animal soul. Where's the space to, to be beyond the failure of a Russia, even though I'm not at the, the, the level of the, of the ideal purity that I'm aspiring to, which is the tzaddik? Where is that space? What does that look like? How do I live there? How do I stay there? How can I feel good about myself being there because that's all I can live there? Right? Those are all not intuitive questions because it's, it's an in-between space. It's a space that, that you have to kind of push the things, the two extremes away out of your mind to create that space. Yeah. So, like before we talk about like the spiritual Right. There's a psychological thing, like I have to think of myself as a good person or a bad person. Right. But if we introduce the idea of being in me, the only thing, like, it only changes in the spiritual level. It does. On the spiritual level, like, it does. It's just like a topic. No, it does. Um, so, the Tzemach Tzedek has a note that the, the, the psychological answer is not explicitly answered in time. Sorry. But if you study, I'll tell you right now. The answer is that there is a space in between thinking of yourself as a good person and as a bad person. Which is, which is if you reorient yourself out of the question of being good or bad 
and into the question of the significance you have to someone else. To, to put it like kind of very simply, right? Someone could think she's a good mother. Someone could think she's a bad mother, right? Or she could stop thinking about whether she's a good mother or a bad mother and realize she just is this person's mother and they need their mother. That's a very, that's a very different way of conceptualizing yourself, right? Instead of giving yourself a kind of a, 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 a normative label of good or bad, right? You all of a sudden, you, you, you're, you're orienting yourself around the, the significance you have to someone else. And that, that Samachzadik says, and this is a theme that's elaborated in Chassidus, it's not just that the Bainani is spiritually, religiously in between the Tzadik, who is purely governed by his godly soul, and the Rasha, who is being governed by his animal soul. He's not like something in between that, which again, conceptually you have to explain how does that work. But also to live in that space, Consistently requires you not be in a space that's between thinking of yourself as a good person and a bad person. That you stop thinking of you, you see yourself thinking as you start thinking of yourself as I am. I have bad parts of me and I have good parts of me, and what defines me is not the good of me or the bad of me. And I mean not what I do, the deep, 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 deep in me. What defines me is the significance that I have for God and how I live my life. And there's a kind of transcending of, of self-focus that needs to happen in order to live in that space of abandonment. A tzaddik can think of themselves as a good person from a religious point of view because they really are. And a rasha can't think of themselves as a good person from a religious point of view because they're not. And a bainani can't think of themselves as a good person because they're not. But they can't think of themselves as a bad person because they're not. So they have to think of them as something else. And if I had to use one word, I think of themselves as an important person. A person whose life and decisions really matter. You see what I'm saying? That's a very different mental space. It has an element of thinking yourself as a good person, but it's not entirely just that. And the more and more and more we go into it, the more that you really have to create a new, not a, a new mental and emotional space to, to, to inhabit in order to live as a Bainani. You can't just like add the information, the Tanya, onto our basic notion of good person, bad person. People who struggle, people who have it all made for them. Like if that's the way we relate to ourselves and we just add the information of the Tanya, the, the Bainani just gets to end up turning into like Tzaddik version light. It's like a light version of Tzaddik. And then you've missed it. That's not what it is. Or it's a, it's a justification not to feel so bad that you're a Russia, which is not what it is. And you'll see in life, if you ignore what people are saying and you, like the words, and you start thinking about like what they mean, you start to see we often talk about a Tzaddik or talk about a Bainani either as an unattainable, lofty, pure ideal I, we've just made another version of a tzaddik or a way of not feeling so bad that our animal soul gets the best of us sometimes. So we missed it. We, like, the baby went right past us. Even though we might be able to on a board map it out and chart it out, but there's something about how our mind doesn't have that middle space naturally. You have to like, work the mind and more importantly work the heart to bring yourself to the point where you, you can feel that, you can get that. And it's something that 
you know, if you don't keep working at it, it kind of revert back to the normal thing where you lose that middle space. And I think that's an important context to realize that the author is not giving us new information, he's giving a new way of relating to the information by calling it a vanity. Because it's not intuitive that there should be such a thing. Our minds are not built to relate to it that way. Say that. The more, the more we learn what it is, the more it'll, the more will, will it'll make sense. But it'll also be that you start to realize that as much it makes sense, then you leave the classroom and you live your life. You're like, it's really, it's a total reworking of everything to feel that way. And so, in a way, like before chapter twelve, you know, Alter was like, he says this information. The information is the information. It doesn't have that. You have to hold it by two ends at the same time. Thank you.